When it comes to foreign news coverage in Australia, we're accustomed to seeing just the work of a small band of foreign correspondents. But beyond these shores, there are dozens of other Australian journalists out there in the world filing away day and night for radio, online, print and television, and many of them are women. Now, if they aren't exactly household names here in Australia, it's often because they're working for international news outlets, and I've got to say they're doing extraordinary work. There's a new book called Through Her Eyes, Australian Women Correspondents from Hiroshima to Ukraine. I'm delighted to be joined by three of the contributors, and I must declare in the spirit of full disclosure, that I am also one of the contributors. I spent two decades on the road as a foreign correspondent in Asia, the Middle East and the US for the BBC and Britain's Channel 4 News. Uh, We're going to be joined by Su Lim Wong, who's been covering China for various outlets, most recently The Economist, and Lynn O'Donnell, an Afghan veteran of the journalistic kind. Um, But first, let's meet Dia Hadid who is based in Islamabad in Pakistan and works for NPR, the American National Public Radio Network. Now, Dia has covered the Palestinian territories for the New York Times and was a Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press. Her Twitter bio explains a lot. She says she's NPR's woman in Islamabad and Kabul, Lebanese face, Aussie accent, Egyptian hair. Now, Dia has had to fly off to cover the floods in southern Pakistan, so we spoke to her a little earlier and she gave us the lowdown on exactly what it's like in Pakistan at the moment. Right, so Pakistan is witnessing unprecedented uh, floods and we use the word unprecedented a lot in the age of climate change but to give you an idea um, at the peak of the flooding about a third of the country was underwater it was affecting about 33 million people the floodwaters have receded since then but basically there's still a lot of water in southern Pakistan in what are some of the country's already most impoverished vulnerable and marginalised areas. And, you know, climate change is a funny thing, as you know, from Australia, because you can see an image on television and then assume that that's what's happening everywhere. Whereas in reality, in in, in Pakistan, most of the urban centres didn't experience much flooding at all. And so this has sort of even been on the periphery of the Pakistani vision. Um, Because just like climate change affects poorer countries more than it affects wealthier countries because they have less resources to deal with it and they're climatically more vulnerable, even within these really large developing countries, climate change is hitting the poorest people here the hardest. So it's like this totem pole of suffering where the most marginalised and the most vulnerable who've done the least to contribute to climate change are suffering the most. So dear... Uh, Does that mean that you have to go further out from Islamabad to reach the areas that are worst affected to describe, you know, the worst of the story? Yeah. um, Look, initially when the floods happened, in fact, there was flooding about two hours drive from Islamabad, just heading northwards to the the Himalayas. Um, And that 
was riverine flooding and flooding caused by glacial melt because Pakistan has the world's largest number of glaciers after the poles and those glaciers are melting. And, and that's caused an enormous amount of flooding in the north of the country. But now the flooding is largely centred in the south. And, and to get there, yeah, it's quite a journey. We have to fly to a regional town in southern Pakistan. From there, we'll probably do three to five hours of driving on back roads um, to get to what we'll call like the beginning of the lake which is sort of like this giant flooded area, which has submerged um, hundreds, if not thousands of villages. These are tiny little villages. We're not talking about big hamlets. And so, yeah, it's quite a process to even get there. And it even just takes a lot of equipment, stuff as a foreign correspondent. I just, it's it's just stuff. Like I've So tell me, tell, talk me through, and... yeah, talk me through what's in, I know you've been packing. Talk me through what's in your suitcases. <laughs> um. Let's start with the most important stuff because, like most foreign correspondents, I'm deeply superstitious. So, so I've got some lucky me, charms. Yeah, my lucky charm is um, a rosary that I got in northern Iraq when I was covering um, the sweep of ISIS into uh, Yazidi, Christian and Kurdish areas. And I, I, I went to a village that had been decimated by ISIS. I met the survivors and they gave me a crucifix. And that crucifix, ironically enough, had come from an area of Syria that had also been decimated um, by ISIS and that Christian population had since gone. So I've got like the last remaining rosary from these two Christian populations um, who no longer exist in those places anymore. And I, I, I carry it with me everywhere. So that's the superstitious stuff taken care of. Dear, can I ask, um, what, are you, what are you carrying when you carry that with you? What are you actually carrying, do you think? I'm carrying mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. I'm, I'm, carrying, I'm carrying mindfulness. Like it's just a reminder to sit and be still and to listen because the people who are speaking to me are in a far more precarious place than I could ever imagine or dream of. I am ultimately protected by a bubble of wealth, privilege, passport and, and foreign contacts. Even if for about 20 years, all I've done is meet people who are deeply vulnerable, marginalised and poor. And yet I could never for a moment stand in their shoes and imagine what their lives are like. And that crucifix, sorry, like it's like a rosary with a crucifix on it. That, that, that rosary for me is a reminder of the precariousness of the lives of the people I speak to. There's a, there's a responsibility that goes along with that isn't there? I certainly always felt, you know, you feel a bit conflicted when you leave, when the helicopter arrives or the flight arrives or you drive out of the scene of the emergency and go off to your capital to, you know, wait for another major story to descend. Uh, and it's hard yes. not to take with you the memories of the very vulnerable people that you've met along the way. I think we should. Um, I think moral injury is important. And, and maybe just to explain moral injury, it's the act of, of witnessing profound injustice. And it's, and it's really hard to explain that to people because we assume when we grow up in wealthy countries that if, if something bad's happened to you, you've probably done something to deserve it. And, and one of the really hard things that has been for me personally to understand as, as a correspondent, uh, even after all these years, is that terrible things happen to blameless people. And I think that's a really important lesson to take away. And the injury that it creates inside us is important because this is really highfalutin stuff. But if we want to be a good community, if we want to be real people and belong to this global network, 
then we do have to have moral injury because what's happening does hurt. The irony is, though, dear, and I'm sure that you will have met people like this in the job that you do now, and certainly I did along through the years uh, in my mm. time as a foreign correspondent, is that the more of this that you see, the more blunted you can become to that experience. So in a way, to, in order to protect yourself and your own mental health and well-being, you have to be able to shut down those memories of trauma that you've witnessed and written about and sent stories about in order to be fresh enough and have the energy to go out the door to the next one. So it's a bit of a balancing act, isn't it? It is. It is. It's an important balancing act. And it's really taken me years and years of doing this to understand that there's a point where you can't help everyone. You can't do everything. You know, I'll be honest, like, I do blunt myself. Like, there is a part of me that physically has to shut down to do these stories. I, I've been to um, a hospital in Kabul, the Indira Gandhi Hospital, where the most complicated cases of child and baby malnutrition um, are dealt with. And so you're walking into a ward where these babies are just sticks. They're wrinkled. They're, they're, they've got sores all over them. They look like they have old faces and their mothers are helpless. You know, I've got two two young children myself. Like, I do have to turn off. There's a part of me that physically just has to turn off so I can I can do what I can, right? It's a bit like a surgeon. A surgeon cares about the life of the patient, but when they're operating on the patient, they can't think about that. They just have to think about the job ahead of them. And I speak from the perspective of someone who I have been treated with PTSD and I still have lingering PTSD and there's definitely stuff I will never do again and never want to do again. Dear, in this book about female correspondence called Through Her Eyes, you wrote about a fairly unique challenge, and that challenge was being one of the first correspondents back in, in Gaza, this is back in 2009, I think, who was of Arabic background herself but working for Western media. Now, take, <laughs> take us through the extent to which that was an advantage and the way, the times at which it might have proven a disadvantage. Right. So, yeah, I was with the Associated Press from about 2006 to 2015, and a lot of that time was in Gaza, in Israel and the Palestinian territories in general. But I spent a lot of time in Gaza, and and I'm I'm of Lebanese background. Like I'm the, I'm the daughter of a Lebanese immigrant, and um, I speak the same language as Palestinians. We broadly have the same dialect. I look like them. And in a way that most foreign correspondents, I, th I think, really couldn't understand, I viscerally would experience um, Palestinianness because it was like being with my cousins in Sydney with all the good and the bad that comes of that. And so um, I would go into Gaza, you know, and I'd be like really, <laughs> really triggered by men complaining that they had eight daughters, for instance. And, you know, because I knew what they were saying. They really wanted a son. They weren't valuing their daughters. Like that was something that would personally trigger me because I knew that conversation. But it also meant that when people would talk to me about their experiences or their pain, like I would feel it in my gut because it was in a language I understood. It was using, you know, metaphors I, you know, that, that were home for me. Um, and so, I got to really hear interesting stories. And I think stories that baffled and surprised other foreign correspondents. Like, how did you get that? How did you know that? How did you hear that? And it's like, well, I just sit down with people and I listen to them in Arabic, <laughs> in a Levantine dialect of Arabic. But it also must have meant that in a way 
potentially you have a problem of Hamas applying a different standard to you than they might to, you know, the the American correspondent from CNN or because, you know, they have a certain expectation of the way that Western media is going to behave. But then when, oh, when a girl with an Arab name who speaks Arabic starts being critical of Hamas, I'd imagine that's seen in a different way. Oh, absolutely. And the thing is, is that I was particularly critical of Hamas. I think I was famously critical of Hamas because I was speaking to Palestinians who would really open their hearts and tell me their experience of living under the rule of like a militant Islamic group. And there's also another like little cultural aspect here, which is I have a very Lebanese um, accent and Lebanese women are sort of famous and infamous through the Middle East as we're quite progressive, we're quite liberal were quite out there. And for some people that meant also that I was sexually available. And um, for a lot of the um, senior Hamas officials, some of them really liked me and they really liked talking to me because, you know, they could really go deep into um, their experiences and their thinking. Like one Hamas official who I'm still in touch with, for instance, uh, really liked Alif Shafak, their Turkish writer. And we would talk for hours about the literature that he loved, that he had no one else to talk to about, right? But yeah, for other Hamas officials, they used to call me like that, that mean Lebanese girl because I was you so critical have that, of them. You should have a T-shirt. You should have a T-shirt with that on, yeah, surely. <laughs> <laughs> That's a badge of honour. Um, it was, it, you know, it was weird. And, and the other thing is it was even harder because some of the other Western correspondents who came in who were also of Arab origin, who were dealing with Hamas, tended to be quite sympathetic to them in a way that I think would really like rile my gut. And so they expected me to be like that. They expected me to be more sympathetic to them because I was an Arab. And and I just wasn't. In fact, I was even more critical. And yeah, and so it was really an issue and ultimately became quite a big issue for me in Gaza. And it was one of the reasons why I didn't go back after a while, because it was made clear to me that I wouldn't, I, I, I was not welcome anymore in the strip. So yeah, it did it did have its good and its bad sides. Like one of the great ironies of being with this name and with this appearance and speaking the way that I do is that often I would meet officials who were quite disappointed to meet me because they were waiting for a white guy. Because that for them is shorthand for somebody important, right? It wasn't the girl with the big curly hair and like, you know, the dress over the jeans, you know, who saunters in and says, oh, like, you know, they, they were waiting for like someone like with a jawbone, you know, jawbone and piercing eyes. And preferably and, and, from and, Princeton or Yale to write kind of memorable yeah. things <laughs> about them and speak yeah. in a foreign accent on TV. I mean, Kabul, you know, I'm guessing Kabul, or certainly I know from experience, Kabul too can be a place that is very difficult for women correspondents. And given that you're blending in with other women there, I'd imagine that that would have been uncomfortable at times as well. Yeah, no, and and it's it's very similar in Kabul because I have this, you know, what I call like a vague ethnic face, Uh, olive skin, green eyes, brown hair. I could be anywhere from Afghanistan to Athens. And um, when I'm in Kabul, people just assume I'm, I'm Pashto. So and it, and it does work. I'm quite invisible, but it also means that the Taliban treat me like a recalcitrant Afghan woman, and so I've been yelled at for not covering my hair properly, even though I actually go to great lengths to cover up properly because I'm not there to prove a point. I'm there to do my job. They've asked me where like my male guardian is. I covered um, 
Afghan women protesting, demanding equal rights, the right to education, the right to work. And this was right before the anniversary, the the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And these women were marching down the street. I was covering with my colleague and um, the Taliban opened fire, like the security forces opened fire above the women's heads. And And it was frankly terrifying. I ran away. I was still like filming, but, you know, obviously I, I, I fled to safety and I saw that they were trying to like arrest the other journalists. No one tried to arrest me, but I got punched in the face by a Taliban um, policeman because he thought he thought I was one of the protesters. So like, you know, he punched me in the face, knocked off my glasses and told me to piss off. Um, you know, like I picked up my glasses and I ran. But, you know, it was just like one of those ironies of like, oh, no one's going to try you know, detain me like a journalist, but what might happen to, you know, instead I got, I got treated like the Afghan women who they were violently repressing. Um, but you know, that, I mean, that does happen, but also what happens is that when you're, I, I, perhaps I think you experience this too, is that female correspondents tend to be a third gender in these really, um, these really conservative societies where there's a very clear distinction between men and women and women occupy very private spaces and men occupy the public spaces. And women who are these foreigners like us, we tend to be able to go between both. Dear, I know you've got a plan to catch. You need to make sure that you take your lucky charm, please. Stay safe, (laughs) stay as dry as you can, and we'll look out for your reports. Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye -bye. Dear Hadid there covering Pakistan and Afghanistan with great energy and expertise, as you no doubt heard, for NPR. And now a warm welcome to Sue Lin Wong and Lynn O'Donnell, who've been listening to Dia. Uh, we'll come back to that part of the world in a moment with Lynn. But first, Sue Lin Wong, uh, you've just been very much a part of China's rapidly changing history or the fallout of it. But would you tell us first about those Saturday afternoon Mandarin classes in Sydney that you resented so much. <laughs> it's great to be here, Kylie. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Sydney and uh, like many Australians of Chinese heritage, my parents forced me and my brother to go to Saturday Chinese school Um which we were really not into, uh, especially because most of our friends were, you know, at the park or hanging out at home and we were trying to copy out Chinese characters in exercise books on, you know, hot summer afternoons in Sydney. Uh, But I guess now looking back on that time, I'm incredibly grateful and probably wouldn't have the job that I currently have had I not been forced to go to Chinese school on Saturday afternoons. So we should explain the job that you currently have. I mean, until recently, you were a China correspondent for The Economist, but that's very definitely ended for now. And I understand you're set to become the Southeast Asia correspondent. Currently, though, you're in London. You've been working on this podcast for The Economist about Xi Jinping. Can you give us a bit of a snapshot of the sort of work you've done in China? What types of stories are you most proud of? Yeah, so I was in China starting in 2015. Um, so I was first with Reuters, then the, with the Financial Times, and and recently uh, joined The Economist in 2020. And I covered a whole range of different beats. Um, you know, I started my career as a newswire reporter covering Chinese economic data. So, you know, I would go to the Statistics Bureau press conferences and write very short stories about China's latest GDP figures. Uh, but after that, I covered North Korea, but from the Chinese side of the border. So China and North Korea share a 1,400-kilometre border and there are lots of towns um, on 
the Chinese side that have all kinds of interactions with North Korea. So for about two years, I spent a lot of time on that border finding stories about the relationship between China and North Korea, but also, you know, just North Korea in and of itself. And in some ways, um, you know, I've reported from North Korea as well, but I felt like I had more access to more interesting stories on the Chinese side of the border because there were lots of people who constantly traveled to North Korea and would come back to the Chinese side of the border and feel freer um, to speak. Um, and then after that, I actually moved to Southern China and was covering um, China's big tech companies. So tech companies that, you know, we hear about in Australia all the time, like Huawei and Tencent, uh, and then was in Hong Kong and just so happened to be there uh, for the 2019 Hong Kong protests. And that's that's not a just yeah. happened to be, Celine. That's that's extraordinary good extraordinarily good planning and positioning, isn't it? To be there for that tumultuous moment. Well, I guess there's that there's that joke that foreign correspondents tell about the holy trinity of being in the right place at the right time with the right beat. And if you get that once in your career, you're a very lucky correspondent. And I, I, I do feel like that's what happened with me. Obviously, what happened to Hong Kong was incredibly tragic, but to sort of be there um, both at the height of the protest, but also to cover the fallout and how the Communist Party crushed Hong Kong and turned it into a police state was really, really fascinating and revealing. Celine, in 2020, of course, the focus shifted to covering the pandemic and you were able to get really inside that story, weren't you? You were in Shenzhen talking to doctors and nurses, finding out about this SARS-like virus inside a ward um, where patients had been brought in from Wuhan. That's right, yeah. Actually, in January 2020, um, I was told that patients were being transferred from the city of Wuhan to Shenzhen, the city where I was based on the border of Hong Kong. And so we, my colleague and I went to the hospital we thought they were at, but like every story in China, nothing is sort of served to you on a platter, nothing, you can't necessarily walk into the front door. So I remember we spent several hours on the hospital grounds speaking, trying to find doctors and nurses and hospital staff coming out of the wards to try to confirm that there were these patients with this mysterious virus. At the time, we didn't know it was COVID. Uh, and yeah, it's just um, kind of incredible how the world turned upside down after that. Now, the, the world kind of turned upside down too very much for any foreign journalists who might have been caught there uh, as these tensions grew, uh, many journalists were immediately expelled. You weren't? You had a little bit longer, is that right? Yeah, so the journalists from several of the sort of big American newspapers were expelled from China, so from mainland China, but things were sort of uh, we weren't entirely sure the direction the wind was blowing in Hong Kong uh, until, yeah, I found out um, my visa expired in Hong Kong and then I wasn't entirely sure if it was going to be renewed. I got this ominous letter from the Hong Kong authorities asking for every single story I'd ever written about Hong Kong along with all kinds of other information and it didn't feel safe to stay. So, uh, in September of last year, I got on a flight. I actually couldn't go back to Australia at that point because there were no flights to, to Sydney or anywhere in Australia because uh, of COVID. Uh, so I got on a flight to London where the Economist is headquartered and um, 
a couple months later found out that the Hong Kong authorities had declined to renew my work visa, but they didn't give a reason. And to this day, I don't really know what happened. Is that is that a, an object of sadness for you, Sulin? I mean, you write so enthusiastically and kind of thrillingly about discovering China uh, in through your work and the relationships you have, the hunt for the story, as you say, you can't come in through the front door. You have to meet lots of different people along the way, piece all that information together to build a story. Uh, you obviously with kind of found it a thrilling place to be. Uh, is there a degree of sadness now for you in the fact that you can't work there? Yeah, definitely. I, I feel a real sense of, of loss and grief even, um, you know, for all the stories I didn't do, for my friends who are there. I'm not sure when I'll see them again. But actually, I think it's it's not just a personal sense of loss. You know, China itself has really changed since I first went there as an 18-year-old in, in 2007. Um, th- back then, things felt really hopeful. You know, China felt like it was opening up, whereas China in 2022 feels much more authoritarian and, and much more closed off. And and I think, um, you know, it doesn't just sadden me as a journalist. It just, I guess, saddens me as, as a person. We'll come back to what actually happened personally for you as well in a bit more detail. But Lynn O'Donnell, meanwhile, is in London, based there these days. Lynn has had a long career working in Afghanistan and elsewhere and is a bit of a legend uh, <laughs> from the perspective of someone who worked in Afghanistan herself. Uh, it's great, Lynn, to be able to speak to you. Um, uh, of course, you. Your, cl- your claim to fame is that you uh, were working in Afghanistan when the West made its kind of large-scale intervention uh, and then you were there 20 years later when the Taliban took control again. Uh, the last time you went to Kabul then, you had been warned by the Taliban not to return, but you did, and you were then detained, is that right? Yes, but I did. Um, it was uh, exactly a year. I left on what was probably the last commercial flight to lift off from Kabul airport on the 15th of August in 2021, just a few hours before the Taliban came in and took over you know, Kabul was the final city that they needed for every piece of the jigsaw to fall into place. And um, I felt that a year later, when there was a spike up in interest again in Afghanistan because of the first anniversary, that I really had to go back and have a look for myself exactly what it was like. There'd been a lot of hysterical reporting. You know, if you're only relying on stuff coming out of the UN-affiliated agencies, I mean, Armageddon is happening, you know, before your eyes without any real idea of what the reality is. And so I felt it was my professional duty, to be honest, Kylie. People introduce me as an expert on Afghanistan uh, whenever I talk about it. And I, I, I felt I can't be an expert on anything unless I have my own experience of it. And I, I did go back to report um, for the first anniversary of the Taliban's takeover. I knew that I was taking a risk, but I had absolutely no idea what would happen to me. And what happened to me came really out of the blue. Now, as I understand it, of course, you were accused um, of not being a journalist, but of being a spy masquerading as a journalist, which is a pretty, you know, a, a tried and <laughs> tried uh, kind of accusation to level against foreigners working in a country. Um, they... Also pretty serious. You know, I went Absolutely. back as a journalist and it, it went from that. The, there was a one-week trajectory from me being um, 
the intelligence um, agency of the Taliban does not recognise you as a journalist. They're going to ask you to leave and my life was threatened. The spokesman for the uh, foreign ministry of the Taliban threatened to have me killed for writing inaccurate stories. But it wasn't until after I had left that the spokesman for the Taliban itself said that I had snuck into the country masquerading as a journalist. I had been hunted down and found in hiding that I was actually a spy and I was ejected never to return. Um, that trajectory is not only dangerous for me, it's dangerous for everybody that I was in contact with or who I may be in contact because it gives them carte blanche then to say they were consorting with a spy. So that was the danger in that. I was out by then, you know. I, I, I found that really insidious. It's a terrible um, burden to bear, isn't it, when you know that effectively by being in the place, even though as you describe it, there's a duty to be there and tell that story, there is a risk attached to the people who work uh, with you uh, and the people who you interview and you do wonder, Mm. well, hang on, if things go awry for me, suddenly these people could be accused of all all sorts of things. And can't get on a plane and leave the way I did. Are you, this sounds an unlikely optimistic question, but are you expecting things to change there? I mean, you said that there was kind of overblown dramatic reporting uh, in the first weeks of the Taliban return to power. But given what you saw when you returned, do you think things could change? Uh, Is there any whiff of a potential, I don't know, room for reform, room for democratisation, room for girls going to school? I think that's such a difficult question to answer. I, um, When I got there, Kylie, I found uh, – what, what I found was – way beyond anything that I could have imagined. I knew that it was going to be bad. I also knew there'd been an awful lot of revisionism. Um, It was as if uh, Kabul, Afghanistan was paradise before the 15th of August last year and suddenly it was hell. But that wasn't the case at all. The agencies had been reporting that with the winter coming up um, 2021, a lot of people were facing hunger and hardship anyway. Um, Afghanistan has long been one one of the poorest countries in the world, its government one of the uh, most corrupt. It just got worse, but it got worse because it had been taken over by a gang of drug dealers who are effectively a Pashtun nationalist organisation that um, uh, has an incredible bias against people who are not like them and most of the population are not like them. You know, you have Hazaras, you know, that there is a, an, an ethnic uh, mosaic in Afghanistan. Um, half the population, of course, has been disappeared. That's the women. But there are Hazaras, there are Shias, there are Tajiks, there are people in the Panjshir Valley. And all of these people are being targeted for um, specific reasons. And then there's people who used to work with the government, who used to be in the former um, security services. Um, And there is utter impunity. There's no security and there's no rule of law. But what I found was this incredible um, sadness 
and um, grief and real shock. There were no smiles. It was a, you know, Kabul was always a, a gregarious place with traffic gridlocked and people going places and the restaurants full and cafes and ladies out in groups shopping and none of that was, was there anymore. The Taliban is stealing people's privately owned cars because there's no economy um, and we also have the overlay of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, petrol is through the roof. People can't afford to drive. The bakeries are empty of bread with um, women and their children begging around them. I mean, it was just worse than I could have expected. And what hope is there? Um, I have no idea. I mean, today we hear that the Americans have made a swap of a a drug dealer who's who bankrolled the Taliban insurgency for decades in return for an American uh, aid worker who's been held hostage by the Haqqani gang for the past two and a half years. They're doing deals um, um, because they're, the Americans who lead the world on these sort of issues are buying the Taliban propaganda that they are counterterrorism partners where they're not. Afghanistan is now the most dangerous country in the world and I can't see anybody making any change as long as there is no consequence for their actions and there's not. Lynn, I'll come back to you in a moment to talk about the role of a woman correspondent in that kind of mm. an environment. But Sulem Wong, um, I'd imagine that, you know, we were joking around about the Mandarin classes in Sydney, but I'm guessing that being of Chinese background would at times have really helped you in all sorts of ways, but it also potentially ended up being quite complicated for you because of your kind of cultural identity, a, a bit like Dia was describing earlier. I mean, your chapter in this book is titled Race Traitor. T tell me what happened. Yeah, it was fascinating to hear Dia share her experiences of being, you know, of Lebanese heritage and an Arabic speaker in Gaza because it just, um, it felt like there were so many parallels with with my own experiences. And obviously, I'm not an Arabic speaker of Lebanese heritage. Um, but yeah, I was born and raised in Australia, feel incredibly Australian, uh, but, you know, I'm of Chinese heritage and speak Mandarin and, and look Chinese. And as you mentioned, that has actually often been a huge advantage as a China correspondent. Um, I've been able to, you know, sneak into villages um, where protests are going on um, that, you know, my white colleagues would, would have real trouble sneaking into, for example. Um, but when everything happened with my visa and, and I was, you know, effectively kicked out of Hong Kong, there was this outpouring of support from foreign correspondents um, and journalists in Hong Kong and, and The Economist was very supportive. But I was just subjected to enormous amounts of vitriol from um, some of China's biggest news organizations, especially the ones that really are known to fuel nationalism. Um, and I was called all kinds of things, um, including race traitor or an arguiz, which in Chinese was the derogatory term used for Chinese who helped the Japanese during World War II. Um, so the sort of the level of um, racism that not only um, I've been subjected to, but many uh, correspondents of Chinese heritage have been subjected to is, is um, pretty horrific. And it's getting worse and worse as the Chinese Communist Party increasingly, you know, conflates what it means 
to sort of kind of conflates the Communist Party and the people of China, which, you know, are two very different things. But the party increasingly thinks that not only the people of China should represent the Communist Party, but, you know, anyone around the world of Chinese heritage should as well. Lynn, just listening to Sulin there, effectively talking about, you know, being hounded by nationalist trolls. I mean, of course, part of being a female correspondent, it seems to me, is being hounded by trolls of some description or another. I mean, this is a tricky question to phrase, but should it be considered differently? Should the role of a female correspondent be considered differently to the blokes who do the same work? Oh, I think that that is a really, <laughs> a really complicated um, question because, you know, I fought so long to be able to do the work that I wanted to do because I'm a woman, whereas the plum jobs for a long time went to the men. I remember I started my career as a cadet on the Sun News Pictorial in Melbourne, and I remember we used to go and drink at the Phoenix pub on Flinders Street and I remember sitting there and there was a conversation about violence against um, Australian expats who were living in Papua New Guinea and and I thought, wow, that's a really interesting story. I'd love to go and cover it. And the guys I was sitting around talking with said, oh, you'd never send a woman to do that job. And I thought, why the hell wouldn't you send me to do that job? I could do it just as well as anybody else. And that was the first inkling that I had of the sexism that I was going to um, have to traverse for most of my career. You know, I was in um, just, you know, listening to Sulin talk about her experience, which I think is very sad but not surprising. I spent more than a decade in China as a correspondent for both Reuters and The Australian, and I dyed my hair black so that I looked like a Uyghur, and I used to get around looking like a Uyghur in many instances because it just made it easier for me to move around. Um, these days I'm blonde and I didn't cover my hair for a long time when I was in um, Afghanistan because um, it's a little bit more uh, lenient. The Islam that um, that most Afghan uh, people follow is a little bit more lenient and and less uh, strict on people like me. And and I was accepted as as a foreigner and a, as, as a non-Muslim in most places that I went. Of course sensitivities, mosques, all of those sort of things would be very different. Um, but I think that your question about men and women correspondence, maybe it's different now because there do seem to be, if not equal numbers, maybe even more. I remember when I was at Agence France Press, they found it very difficult to get men to go and take up uh, bureau postings. It was the women who wanted to do it. So maybe there's more of us now. But our bosses are still men. And um, the editors who are men who have lunch with the Prime Minister and still inform policy, um, you know, that things, things have changed and are changing, but we're not there yet. And, and Sulin, can I ask you the same thing just very briefly? Have you felt hampered by working as a woman, you know, either by your boss's attitudes towards you or by people who you're seeking to interview? Yes, it's a great question. So I um, agree with Lynn that newsrooms have really changed for the better, but there is still like a very, very long way to go. 
I personally think, um, you know, in a way similar to what Dia was saying, I feel like I, being a woman uh, and a female foreign correspondent in China where most of my colleagues have been men has actually been an advantage um, because I've been able to get, you know, different kinds of stories and, and different kinds of access given that, you know, half of any country uh, um, yeah, is female. But... Yeah, I think undoubtedly being a, a woman in a newsroom presents challenges that are different from from what it's like if, if you are a man. Thanks both so much for, for joining us and talking through this. I find it fascinating, the shift, and I guess the shift in coverage that's resulted from so many more women being out in the field. But that was uh, Su Lin Wong, who was most recently reporting on China for The Economist, but is about to start as their Southeast Asia correspondent. Meanwhile, she's been working on a podcast for The Economist about Xi Jinping, which she is hosting. That podcast is called The Prince, and it will be out on September the 28th. So look out for that on your podcast platform. And Lynn O'Donnell, now based in London, but for many years in Afghanistan and China as well, as she mentioned. Lynn, by the way, is working on a book, an anthology of women war correspondents. It will be published by Hearst in 2024. And earlier, that was Dia Hadid, who you were listening to, who told us about her work for NPR and others in the Middle East and in South Asia, off covering the floods in Pakistan now. The three of them and many others are in a new book called Through Her Eyes, Australia's Women Correspondents from Hiroshima to Ukraine. It's edited by Melissa Roberts and Trevor Watson and published by Hardy Grant. G'day, potties. If you like discussions that get beyond the headlines and help you make sense of the big trends in business and politics... Check out uh, Saturday Extra with my colleague Geraldine Doog on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 